Good evening. My name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> Sober night for the living grace of God and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason I put this timer here is not for my uh, well-being, it's for yours. When it beeps, I'm done. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me down here. It's, uh, I've had a wonderful time. And I think this is a great conference. And uh, that was a very nice introduction. They're always not that nice with me. One time in my home group, I was introduced, and they said, Our speaker tonight has been a delegate to the General Service Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. He has been a trustee in the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's... <laughs> And he has been a director of AAWS. And so, Kate, Greg, great pleasure to introduce one of AA's real has-beens, Don. So that's about it. I want to thank the committee for your, the invitation, and your hospitality is, is absolutely wonderful. And you know, when I think about alcoholism and what we know today about it, I can go back in history and I can pick out alcoholics. And, of course, my favorite is Christopher Columbus in 1492. Now, I know Christopher Columbus had to be an alcoholic. The reason I say that is when he left home, he had no idea where he was going. And uh, I'm going to quit that. Uh, when he got here, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back home, he didn't know where he'd been. Now... I don't know about anybody else, but that sounds remarkably like my drinking story. And I was told I should tell a drinking story at a conference, and the only drinking story I can remember is from the Second World War. And this is a story about the young playboy who met a young woman down in the bar. And they started into a little conversation, and so he invited her up to his room in the hotel to show her his etchings. That's what they did back in those days. And uh, when he got her up there, she was well-groomed, chic, and seemingly quite intellectual. So he asked her if she'd care for a drop of port or sherry wine. Why, sherry, by all means, she replied, because sherry to me is a nectar of all gods. Just looking at it here in crystal clear decanter, fills me with the anticipation of a heavenly thrill. And when the stopper is removed and that gorgeous liquid is poured into a glass, I inhale the delicious tangy fumes, and I am lifted on the wings of ecstasy. It seems I taste its magic potion, and my whole being seems to glow. A thousand violins throb in my ears, and I'm sent into another world. On the other hand, she said, port makes me fart. Uh, I've often been asked to explain something about alcoholism, and yet the only analogy I can think of to me is that uh, 
alcoholism is very similar to body odor. Now, the reason I say that is there is no cure in the world for body odor. There is no cure in the world for, al- in the world for alcoholism either. However, there is successful treatment for both conditions. <laughs> now, if body odor is your problem, you can't take three or four baths today and go for the next three or four weeks without taking one. It doesn't work. And yet we have people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they go to three or four meetings in a week and they decide they can skip for the next six weeks. It just doesn't work. It's the, it comes right back to as quick as it must be done on a regular, consistent basis. Attendance of, of, of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I still average about three meetings a week, which I've been doing for over 50 years. And so uh, people say, well, don't you do anything else? And I think, well, what else is there to do? Uh, everything has changed in my whole life since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very grateful to AA for what has happened. Now, when I came into AA, it wasn't like it is today. I can tell you that. It was back in 1948. And it was up in, uh, I was on a geographical cure, uh, going up to northern Ontario in Canada. And I figured if I got away up north, uh, away from the big cities, uh, I wouldn't have to drink because I didn't think people had drinking problems in small towns. But I got up north and found out they drink there as, as anywhere else. And so, uh, what they did in those days is uh, you didn't search out Alcoholics Anonymous. They came and found you. And what they did is they, when the newcomer would come in and they'd talk to him and get him coming and they'd say, now, do you know another alcoholic? And then he'd say, yes. And they'd say, go and get one. Now bring him in. And in those days, they didn't have women alcoholics. They didn't think women drank that much. So I had a drinking buddy, Hal Fleming who in uh, 1947, at Christmas and New Year's, he put, was put in the hospital with acute alcoholism. And while he was there, a pastor came and visited him and asked him, what are you doing here, Mr. Fleming? And Hal said, oh, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And the pastor says, why don't you stop drinking? And he said, I, I would if I could, but I can't. He said, I've tried everything and I can't stop. So the pastor says, I know a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll ask him to come and see you, which he did. And Hal got out of that hospital bed, never to take another drink again until he, dried, until he died sober some 25 years later. And so Hal, the first thing he did in that group is they said to Hal, uh, and by the way, I, I had a little grocery store up in Cobalt, Northern Ontario, mining town, and uh, we lived above the store. And so Howard went to his first meeting, and uh, the old story, they, they uh, asked him, do you know another alcoholic? And he says, oh, sure, Nicholson, down in the grocery store in Cobalt. Everybody knows he's a drunk. So the only one that didn't know was me. <laughs> so anyway, they said, go and get him. And so he came down, and uh, my late wife, her definition of it, he started haunting us. So he came in every day, and of course, I decided at Christmas time to go on the wagon for one year, just to prove to my wife that I was not an alcoholic, because she stated that she was a nurse, 
And she said, you know, if you could go for a whole year without taking a drink, I would never bring it up again. So I t- told her she was on. I went through Christmas and New Year without a drink, you know, very sanctimoniously and self-righteously, of course. And uh, I poured drinks for guests coming in. And they'd say, aren't you going to join us? And I'd say, no, I can't. And they'd say, why not? And I'd say, her. You know, point to, and they'd say, what's the matter with her? And I'd say, well, her mother started the temperance organization, and she's a chip off the old block, and they're not happy unless everybody else is miserable. So, uh, But I made a deal with her. I quit drinking. So anyway, Hal had nothing better to do than come every day. He came over to that store where I was and ordered a Coke and started drinking this Coke and trying to talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And every time he used that word, I'd look around to make sure that nobody was here could hear it. Cause I, that was terrible, those words. And uh, I, uh, I told him, well, Hal, it's all right, I'm on the wagon anyway, and I don't drink, but I'm glad to hear you're doing okay. And as my wife, late wife, described it, he just started to haunt our place. On January, and then come February, uh, I said to my late wife that I was going up to a town up north, some guys, to a legion meeting. And she says, who's going? And I told her, and she says, I don't think you should go. And I said, why not? She says, because you've been doing so well now, and I'm afraid you'll start drinking again. And, of course, she just threw down the gauntlet. She challenged me. So I decided I was going to go whether she liked it or not, just to prove that that I could do this. Well, we no sooner pulled out of town on Saturday night, and they put one of the boys pulled out a bottle of Sandy McDonald's Scotch whiskey. I can still see it vividly today. And they passed it around and came to me, and I thought, you know, she doesn't trust me. You know, that's been the whole problem since we've been married. And, you know, I'm going to spend the night in Kirkland Lake with the guys so I could have a drink now, and she'd never know anything about it because, you know, I'll sleep it off tonight and tomorrow will be fine. So I took a drink, and then I took another one, and then another one, and then I rationalized it. It's her own fault for not, not trusting me in the first place. And... Uh, I finally got home the next Sunday, and of course, that uh, Sunday morning, and it was the same old story. I embarrassed my, my wife and children one more time. And then it was Monday morning, and this Monday was different to any other Monday. There's no more wagging the finger, there's no lecture, there was nothing. She was in the kitchen, and she kept her back to me. And every time I tried to talk to her, she'd turn her back and, you know, keep, keep away from it, and I knew. I was in deep trouble uh, because I tried everything. I'd not always been able to talk my way out of these things, but this day was really different. And that she was thinking that that morning she had decided she was in a hopeless marriage and that she figured it would be best if she took the two children and went home, took them home with her and left me. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but she just wouldn't talk to me. But, you know, I had this sixth sense that I was in deep trouble. And I told her one time that I had a sixth sense. And she says, Donald, I'm so glad you do, because you obviously lack the other five. So, you know, I, I was, couldn't figure this out. And we lived, as I said, above the store. And she just refused to talk to me and kept her back to me. And so I went downstairs 
because and then I was on the way down the stairs to the store. It suddenly dawned me, this is the morning I have to go and see that banker. And every time I needed money and went to see the banker, he always wound up giving me a lecture on drinking. But if my wife went to them, he'd give us anything she asked for. But I knew I was in trouble. She wasn't going to go to the bank today because she's not even talking to me. She won't even listen to me. Nothing. So I figured, well, it's not just her. It's now it's a banker. That's two major crises. Things can't get much worse. The darkest day of my life. And I went over and I unlocked the door of the store. And who comes strolling across the street with a big smile on his face, Al Fleming from the ANA. And I said, well, that does it. They say, trouble's coming three, so there's her, the banker, and now this guy from the ANA. So Hal came in and wanted to know, how are things going? And I says, fine. And he said, are you still in the wagon? And of course I lied. I said, of course I am. And I'm chewing a big wad of dentine gum. They tell me this all later. And he knew that the only time I chewed dentine gum was the morning after, so customers couldn't smell my breath. So he saw me chewing gum, and he'd been waiting for that, so he came in and he started talking. And so every day he'd come over, and I'd see him coming, and I'd head to the back room somewhere and avoid him. And then Friday he rolled around, and I'd stayed sober all week, right from the Monday to Friday. So he finally came in and got his Coke, and then he started talking to me about, you know, this business of AA. And uh, then I thought, well, I wonder... If I went and told her I was going to go to AA, maybe she'd change her, her attitude. So, uh, I, but I had, I'd been sober Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, so if you didn't drink for a whole week, why would you have to go to AA? So, uh, I said to Hal, you wait here. And, uh, he stayed down, and I ran up the back stairs and went in and talked to my wife, and she was still incommunicado. And I said, Hal Fleming's downstairs. Nothing. And I said, I'm going to an A&A meeting with him on Friday night. That did it. She turned around and threw her arms around me and said, Oh, Donald, I'm so glad you're finally going to do something about your drinking. I thought, nice going. I got her now. So I said, will you go to the bank for me? She said, yes. What should I tell him? So I told her what to say to the banker and started back down the stairs again. I can just imagine Three major crises this morning, her, the banker, and Hal Fleming. Now she's fixed up. She's going to see the banker. All I have to do is get rid of Hal, and I'm, I'm not going to go to that meeting with him, that's for sure. I'll think of some excuse. Anyway, oh, pardon me, that was on Monday. And then, anyway, Friday rolls around, and I thought he hadn't showed up, and I thought he's forgotten. So I closed the store a little early, got upstairs, and... Uh, and sat down at the table and uh, was eating dinner and the phone rang and it was Hal Fleming on the phone. And so I started making my excuses why I couldn't go over to their meeting tonight. And with that, my wife tapped me on the shoulder. She says, you promised. And I don't mind you breaking your word with me and the children, but at least you keep your word with other people. And I said, what time is the meeting, Hal? And then he says, it's at 8.30. And I said, where is it? And he said, it's in Haleybury, the next town, up five miles up the road. I said, good, we can go up in one bus and back in the next, because the buses ran every hour. He says, we don't have to do that. One of the members is here with his car. We'll come over and pick you up. I said, don't you dare come over here. I could just see this big white station wagon with Alcoholics Anonymous written on the side of it. And one of those music things on the roof of the car, you know, blaring music. And all these... 
characters, you know, with bald heads and pigtails and long robes, handing out flowers and pamphlets and all that crap, saying about getting saved. And I didn't want to be saved by anybody. And so I thought, if the neighbors ever saw their car at my door, they'd think I was one of them. So I said, don't you dare come over here. I'll come over to your place, Hal, because he lived a couple of blocks away. And so I went down the back stairs and out the back door so nobody would see me, my hat down over my eyes and coat collar up because it was February. And I got over to this meeting. I got over to Hal's place. And I met Harry. And Harry was wearing a suit and tie, clean-shaven. And I said to Hal, what does this bird do? He says, oh, he's the court clerk. I says, you mean the courts are behind this thing? He says, no, no, no. He's a member of AA, like I am. So he said, we'll give you a ride over to the meeting. And so we went over and we went to Terry Smith's house. And he, Terry was a manager of the lumber company. And I knew he didn't drink. I'd heard that he wasn't drinking. And uh, so we went in and his, uh, in those days we had to meet in each other's homes because it was so anonymous, we would never go to a church or any place else to have a meeting because somebody might see you and pass the word along. And so it was super anonymous, and I'm very nervous with Harry and Hal and Terry there until one of the other fellows walked in and I said, uh-huh, I knew him, he was a real drunk. Because every time I was out of the bootleggers, I saw him there, Ernie. So uh, they started. And each one in turn started doing what we still do to this day. Describe in a general way what they used to be like, what happened, and what they were like now. And as they were talking, I'm nodding my head. And after a while, I figured it all out. What these birds do, they phone your wife, they find out all about you, then they say they did these things, and that's how they suck people into this deal. And I said, well, I'm not that stupid. And uh, finally I said, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, this is just a description of the general symptoms of alcoholism. Not only was I alcoholic, I was stupid, too, because I said, well, I've done all those things, and I'm not an alcoholic. Oh. I was like waving a red flag at a bull. Then they just pounced on me. And the, de the deal in those days was a meeting lasted as long as it took them to convince the newcomer to come back to the next meeting. <laughs> and that meeting started at 8.30 sharp, and I got home at half past two in the morning. <laughs> they would not give in. My wife was still awake, and she said, how did it go? And I said, well... The way these guys have laid it out, I'll give this thing a trial and see what happens. But if you dare tell anybody in your family or my family, that's the end of it. Um, quit. And she said, don't worry, I won't tell a soul. And God bless her, she never did. And so that's how I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what they did in those days. But we'd never have a meeting like this in a public place because if we were so anonymous, it was unbelievable. It would be hard for a drunk even to find out how to find us. But uh, we did, and the, then the first thing they said to me is, do you know anybody else that's an alcoholic? And I said, oh, sure, Gordy Norcross, the butcher. And they said, well, go and get him. I said, what do you mean, go and get him? They said, oh, just like Cal brought you in, you've got to go and bring another drunk in. That's the way we work this thing. So I went out and I talked to, to Gordy's wife, and she was all in favor of this. 
And so we, we finally got Gordy to come, <laughs> much against his will, but we kind of railroaded him in, and that doesn't actually work. And so that's the way it went. And uh, AA started to gradually grow, and uh, I can remember the first time one of the, one of the fellows brought his wife to the meeting, and uh, by this time we're meeting over in a, in a different place, and uh, we said, how come you brought your wife, Bill? And he said, well, she's going to come to the meeting. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, she's an alcoholic too. And he said, she can't come to the meeting. And he said, why not? I said, they don't have women alcoholics, because we'd never heard of it. And so we made her stay at home in our place with my wife. She talked to her for a while. And I went to the meeting, and after the meeting, Bill had convinced us that she was as bad or worse than he got sometimes. So we had a private little meeting after the regular meeting at home just for her, because we thought if the, that outfit ever finds out we let a woman in, that'd be a problem. Then one day we heard about some gal by the name of Sybil Corwin out in California had joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And then another gal in New York, Marty Mann, had joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And we thought, well, you know, California and New York, that's where all the weirdos live. You know, that's different. But it wasn't different. And God bless us, finally we started to grow up and things began to change. And as it changed, Alcoholics Anonymous grew and grew and grew. And it became absolutely wonderful. And I think that this is, Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the modern-day uh, uh, miracles. Because I was not an atheist when I came to AA, because, but I was an agnostic. Because atheists don't have holidays, or very few. So I didn't want to call myself an atheist, but I was an agnostic. And uh, I used to say, I don't believe in this stuff because I've just come out of the war, the Second World War. I was a fighter pilot during the war and had been shot down three times and a bunch of other things and become very hardened and everything else and uh, didn't believe in all this stuff. But we gradually grew and things began to change. As we went along in Alcoholics Anonymous, keep going, things begin to change. We begin to see things in a different light. And one of my big things about religion was that my, when my wife wanted to talk about church and everything else, I said, no, you and the kids can go, but I don't believe in that stuff. And uh, they said, what, my wife would say to me, why don't you believe in it? And I says, because common sense tells me that this religion is a bunch of baloney. Because I said, look at where, if, if, if this were true, if this God were really true, He'd perform a miracle that I could witness with my own eyes. But, you know, where are all the miracles? You read about them in your digest. Yugoslavia, Spain, Italy, France, never where they speak English, so you'll notice. And so, if there was such a thing, you know, he'd perform a miracle that I could witness with my own eyes. But no miracle, so no God. And so that's what I thought. But then they say you just keep coming back. And on a regular, consistent basis, things gradually begin to change. And as they change, we become aware of many things. And one of the things we used to have is a dictionary in our group, because we started looking up the definitions of words. And one of the, things, one of the words, one of the earliest words I learned in AA was the definition of honesty, which is the total absence of any intent to deceive. 
Because if my wife were ask me a question, I'll say, what do you think I did about that? Uh, not say what I did, but just let her think, believe that I did do it. And if they, I figured, well, if she jumped to the conclusion I'd done it, that's, you know, her fault, not mine. I didn't lie to her about it. But that was the thing the guys taught me to practice a little honesty. Another thing is we had to learn about humility. And all humility is is not thinking less of me, but thinking of me less. And you keep going to things differently. And as you go and you stay sober, everything begins to change. And of course, one of the things that I noticed we talked about, we read it still, I guess, in our group for alcoholism is a... a they don't know what it is for sure, but many people think it's just uh, uh, one of these problems that some people have. And it wasn't until 1980, though, that the geneticists discovered alcoholism is a biochemical genetic disorder. That simply means that it is hereditary. And if one of your parents is an alcoholic and they have children, there's a 35 times greater chance the offspring will be alcoholic. If both parents are alcoholic, there's a 400 times greater chance the offspring will be alcoholic. And of course, it can skip one generation, but not two. So when somebody says, I can't understand, there's no alcoholism in my family, so you say, if your parents never took a drink, one of your grandparents had, it's that simple. And that's not our, that's not AA's philosophy, that's from the the geneticists, that they know these things. And then as time went on, I began to notice, just keeping my eyes open and listening, that as time went on, my head began to clear and I began to notice some things around me. And I think, I'm the guy who said if they could prove, show me a miracle, that I could believe in a power greater than myself. But no miracles, so no power greater than myself. But as time went on, I became aware of certain things. And one of the things that enters our heads after we get sober for a little while, there's something called a little bit of common sense begins to slip in, and we become aware of things. I used to think a miracle. And you think of, well, fingerprints. Each individual has ten prints. And sometime in September or October this year, there's going to be a child born that will be the nine millionth child on the face of this earth. Now, each one of those nine million will have ten fingerprints. That's 90 million without duplication. There has never, ever been a duplication of fingerprints. So if some genius here could explain to me how you can have 90 billion of anything without duplication. That has to be a miracle. So that was just one. I discovered another one in the medical field, and that's uh, blood vessels. That each human being has over 100,000 miles of blood vessels in their body. Each human being. Now, 100,000, that's a little more than four times around the world. And that's each and every one of us. That has to be another miracle, along with the fingerprints. Another thing we all know, we're very fortunate today with our 
aircraft, and I've been very fortunate to fly overseas a number of times on the Boeing 747. Now, sometime about 35 years ago, the aeronautical engineers, before they designed that 747, they discovered that geese, the goose is the heaviest bird that flies, and they always fly in sort of a V formation. And so they studied them and find out the, rate, the reason they did that was because the lead goose flaps his wings and the other geese fly along in that burbled air. And as when you fly along the burbled air rather than smooth air, you, it, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to do. And it saves 25% less energy to remain in burbled air than it does smooth air. And so then they discovered that if that's the reason, then they designed the Boeing 747 to utilize that. And when you can use 25% less energy in a Boeing 745, 747, that means 25% less fuel on board. Now, it's an amazing it's a, a thing. It in itself is a miracle, that Boeing 747. If you watch it on television and say Chicago... Chicago, as the nose wheel lifts off the ground, that aircraft is traveling at 165 miles per hour. And it grows a climb of a 45 degree angle. And on board, there's 60,000 gallons of fuel on each one. That's enough to fill two suburban swimming pools. And on the climb to altitude, to 40,000 feet, they burn off 6,000 gallons. And remember, that airplane is carrying probably 325 passengers, 22 crew, and all the luggage and freight. And it flies nonstop from, say, Minneapolis to Tokyo in 12 hours, or Chicago, or any of these others. And so, you see, that's one of the modern-day miracles, that 747. And it was attributed to... The, the aeronautical engineers studying the geese, and they designed that aircraft because of that. The other thing, one of the other things that I noticed about a miracle, and I'm the guy who said there never were any miracles, but all you have to do is just open your eyes and, and be aware of them. When you take a tiny brown seed and plant it in black soil, you just have to push it down little ways and give it some moisture and light. And the next thing you know, you get a dark green plant. Now, how can you get a dark green plant out of black soil from a tiny brown seed? So what you do is you pull the plant out of the ground, and it has a bright red root. A bright red root on a dark green plant out of black soil from a tiny brown seed. And you cut the root in half, and it has a pure white heart. So every day today, when I eat my radish, I look at that and think, isn't that amazing? And I know that God is alive and well today as long as we have radishes. And I guess it will be around for a long time. And so I'm a believer. I believe in all these miracles now. And so I have no trouble believe, believing in a power greater than myself. Some of the things we did in, in the early days, I say it's a, it's a lot different now because AA has grown and it's grown so well. But I think back on some of the things that we did. I was very fortunate early in life to have met Bill personally, Bill Wilson, 
and Lois. And uh, I had to go down. I went back into the Air Force in uh, 1952. And the reason is that is I was broke and I needed to get on my feet again. So I got an opportunity to go back in as a pilot in the Air Force and uh, to help build a mid-Canada line. Because at that time, they thought that Russia was going to invade the United States from the, the north, come down through Canada. So the United States Air Force and Canadian Air Force formed a team and built a line right across northern Canada. And we had to do it with helicopters. And so when they started off, we were called into headquarters in Ottawa, Canada, and three of us, and one of them was told he's to be the commanding officer of the new squadron. The other one was going to be told he was the engineering officer, and I was told I would be the operations officer of this new squadron. It was top secret in those days, and we, they built a base way up in northern Quebec, away from everybody and everything. And they led, led people to believe it was just a search and rescue unit. And uh, so I had to go to Bridgeport, Connecticut, to ferry the Sikorsky helicopters up to Canada. And I'd bring one up and then fly back commercially and go and get another one until they were all up there. But very often what had happened is I'd get down there and, and Mr. Igor Sikorsky was still running the plant. And uh, they'd say, we're sorry that your airplane won't be ready today. There's been a glitch in the line, so why don't you just run into town for a day and then it'll be ready tomorrow. So I'd go into New York on the train. It was about a 45-minute run in. I had nothing else to do, or I didn't have any money or anything, so I'd go up to the clubhouse and, or the office in, AA office in New York, and I'd go down and sit and, uh, I was going to say talk to Bill, but listen to Bill. And he'd be sitting there with his hands behind his head in the chair and his feet up on the desk, and he'd be talking away, and he was just unbelievable. And he only had, he had a couple of people paid, and the rest were volunteers. And uh, so I'd do that on a regular basis. And, uh, and of course, he wasn't famous in those days. He wasn't nearly as well-known as he is, became later on. Uh, but then I guess we were blessed. He, he had a, a re tremendous recovery. And so we're very blessed that he started Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember on one occasion, he said, one day this fellowship will be 100,000 strong. And I thought, boy, is this guy ever a dreamer, you know, 100,000, an awful lot of people. And of course, now, we know, I think the official figure is, is uh, 2 million members of AA, but, but that's a false figure, because I know of many groups that aren't even registered with New York, so how do they account for all of them? And the other thing is, it was two years ago, the 18 millionth copy of the big book went out of our general service office. And it's only second to the Holy Bible for the number of books published in this country. And so, and it's still growing, and they're going out over a million a year now. So that tells us that more and more people are becoming aware of AA. In fact, it's no longer a disgrace, it's no longer secret. It's, uh, it's getting to be sort of a thing now to be a member of AA, you know. <laughs> I don't drink, and they say, oh, AA? And they say, that's right. And so, but those are some of the things that, uh, used to do. And then I thought, my problem was I had a whole lot of problems with this business of God. And so they had to talk to me and they had to convince me 
because at that time, as I said, I was the youngest person in Canada to join AA. I was still in my 20s, late 20s. And so they said, well, for your purposes, Don, don't worry about the word God. All that means is good, orderly direction. And that's all that was missing in your life was good, orderly direction or God. And so you come to believe, you, you admit we're, we're alcoholic and... Uh, and then we come to believe that, you know, power green ourselves could restore us to sanity. It doesn't say would, it says could. And that means can if. Can if what? Well, look at the next step. And so, so it goes on that way. And we have to learn what all these things are. And they used to adjust those steps all the time in the beginning. Now they don't do that. Sometimes you go to a meeting, if it doesn't end right in a dot of one hour, and people get upset and start walking out. But uh, in those days, it lasts as long as we had a newcomer. And uh, so I used to think this God bit was, was really something. And I thought, if there was a God, why didn't he perform a miracle? Well, these miracles began to happen. And so I gradually came to believe. And then I hear an Alcoholics Anonymous people say, well, God rewarded me today, or God punished me today. And I don't think that's true, because God doesn't reward or punish anybody. He is the power. But it's just like a light switch. If we put the switch down, the lights go off. The power didn't fail. Some idiot shut it off. <laughs> so they go back there and flip the switch. The lights come back on. And the power is there for light or dark, light or dark. But the power doesn't motivate it. It's a human being. And so it is I re began to realize myself that these things can happen. Oh, there's, by the way, another thing. I have something here that in uh, April the 24th, 1969, in case somebody wasn't aware, that a resolution of gratitude was passed, and I'll read it. Whereas it is the desire of this 19th General Service Conference to confirm the relationship between Alcoholics Anonymous and the Al-Anon family groups. And whereas it is the further desire of this conference to acknowledge AA's debt of gratitude to the Al-Anon family groups, therefore be it resolved that Alcoholics Anonymous recognizes the special relationship which it enjoys with the Al-Anon family groups, a separate but similar fellowship, and be it further resolved that Alcoholics Anonymous wishes to recognize and hereby does recognize the great contribution which the Alamon family groups have made and are making in assisting the families of alcoholics everywhere. And as we all witnessed the past Alamon meeting, I think we should, we alcoholics should uh, recognize the work that Alamon does and by a debt of gratitude to Alamon. Well, there's many things, and there's a number of these things that you have, I have, and I wonder about them. You know, there's something else. I don't know if you've heard about the new psychiatric hotline. Uh, and it's answered by a recording when you call. It says, hello, and welcome to the psychiatric hotline. If you're obsessive-compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. <laughs> if you're codependent, Please ask someone to press two. 
if you have multiple personalities, please press three, four, five, and six. If you're paranoid delusional, we know who you are and what you want. Just stay on the line until you can trace the call. If you are schizophrenic, listen carefully, and a little voice will tell you which number to press. And if you are manic-depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press, no one will answer. So I think that's, uh, that's quite a line for the alcoholics. But anyway, as I say, I thought if there could, was, could be a miracle that I could believe. And of course, as time went by, uh, the miracle did occur in my life. And I used to moan and I groaned. When I came into AA, I was some $13,000 in debt, and it took me 13 years and three months to pay it off. And I moaned. I had to pay it $1,000 a year. I borrowed from the bank to make payments. And I thought, this is such a jip, it should just go away and all this. But they had, they made me, the group says, no, no, you have to pay that 100 cents on the dollar. And so I did, and then things began to change. And as I believed more and more in these miracles, I read something called The Ways of the Lord that was written more than a century ago by an anonymous soldier of the Confederacy. And when I read that, I couldn't believe it. I said, how could some guy a hundred years ago sit down and write the story of my life right to a T in Alcoholics Anonymous? And it goes something like this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. Instead, I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. So despite myself, my prayers were answered, and I feel I am among all men most richly blessed. And the only thing I can say tonight to this wonderful group in Iowa with their wonderful hospitality, is may God bless every one of you in the same way. Thank you so much for having me.